0: Hey guys, you're listening to episode 69 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking to Matthew Hendley, Generosity Ambassador with the National Christian Foundation. there. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan and I'm here with my co-host and brother Cody. Today we're talking to Matthew Hendley, Generosity Ambassador with the National Christian Foundation. Matthew has all kinds of stories about getting to see God move and you won't want to miss what he had to say. Before we get started, you know this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. For those of you who have helped us get the message out there by sending a link to a friend or sharing on social media, we just want to say thanks. It really makes an impact. If you think this or any of our other conversations are thought-provoking or inspiring, take a second to share it with somebody who might need to hear it. We have been blown away at how God has used some of these stories to make a radical impact in the world of generosity and missions, and you very well might be a link in that chain. All right, with that, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here tonight with Matthew Hendley from the National Christian Foundation. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, hey guys, so good to see you and be with you. I appreciate inviting me in. So why don't you kick us off just telling us a little bit about who you are and some of your story, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I would kind of give you a big overview. I'm married to Shannon, 25 years. We
1: have five children, three daughters and two sons, 22 to 10-year-olds. So they're a joy. We have a busy home, as you can imagine. I've worked with National Christian Foundation for, this is my seventh year, and It's just a joy of my life to be able to do what I feel like God's called me into for a career and to have that type of ministry. I get to serve financial advisors, generous families, and ministry charity leaders of all shapes and sizes. So those are the three buckets I tend to spend my time and energy with. But I live down on the coast of Georgia, South Georgia between Savannah and Jacksonville. So yeah, the Lord got my attention as a teenage boy. Years ago, I'll tell you a little bit about my testimony and what God used to get my attention. So grew up in a Christian home. My mother and father love the Lord, which is a wonderful gift. They're still in the same home that they were married and grew up in together over 53, 54 years now. Same home, Homerville, Georgia. But we had a back-to-school rally every summer. Some local families would put together kind of as a get-ready-for-school, and they would have it at the local football stadium, and this year they invited a Christian concert called New Song. Now, New Song, you guys were probably not around, but it's an old Christian group. I was there in the stadium and heard the music. It was good. Heard a presentation of the gospel, which I'd heard dozens of times. I'd already joined the church. I'd already been baptized, but I was lost. And the Lord spoke to me in that setting by using a young man named Joe Merritt, who At the end, there was some type of an altar call, and Joe rose to go down to talk to a counselor at the end of this service. And in my mind, I said, Joe, what are you doing? If you need to know anything about this Christian stuff, I know all about that. You should ask me. That was my attitude. (laughs) The Lord basically just the heaviness of conviction like I've never ever since even experienced. He came to me and basically said in my spirit, you're a fake and a phony. That's why Joe wouldn't ask you. And I was just broken. I was overcome. All my sin was really evident to me very clearly that I had wronged God and I needed a Savior. And I just sat there in the stadium. I didn't go and talk to somebody. I didn't make some public knowledge other than I was just broken. And I wept so terribly, I could not even drive home. That's how serious this was. It was a radical encounter. And I've never been the same, never been the same. It totally transformed my whole world. So I've just had a wonderful journey with Jesus for about 30 years now. Ups and downs and growth and troubles I've created, but God has been so good. My sister had a big influence on my life. I have an older sister. She had come home about this same time, a little earlier in before I came to Christ and repented. She used an analogy, she had been off at a mission project to Florida for the summer with a group called Campus Outreach. She came home and was questioning some of my behavior and some of my activities and talked about how I was embarrassing the family and what I was doing was foolish, and which was true, but I didn't recognize it as that. She used an analogy of a string that went through the room. She said, picture a string that goes through the room. It keeps going as far as you could see on both directions. And she said, now take some chewing gum and mash it. She pushed it on the string, and she said, now, your life is this this little dot, and you're living for this dot instead of the string, the long line of eternity. That was the first time I'd ever considered what I was doing and why it mattered long term. So that was kind of a seed she planted early, maybe a few months prior to me hearing this message from the Lord at this concert. But... And I know I had a lot of people pouring into me earlier and things as I grew up, but those were kind of turning moments for me. And then I left and went off to school, and I had a college roommate. I had prayed for some Christian friends, and I just said, Lord, I need some Christian friends to surround myself with. And in a roundabout way, my roommate left, and another roommate came in who was an older Christian man that kind of mentored me and discipled me. He was about four or five years older than me, non-traditional student at that point. But it was really what I needed, and so I grew a lot in college. Got involved in some Christian student groups and stuff. Met my wife, married then. We were married in college. Lived in a little block building, family housing building. And she helped me grow a lot. She was further ahead of me spiritually for sure, and challenged me a lot. Her prayer life, her understanding of Scripture, her her devotion and faith. It really kind of kicked me in the pants and said, "Hey, you you're going to lead this life. You better get it in gear." And so. <laughs> that really motivated me to to mature as a a man and grow. And so that was special. So those are kind of some of the big times I would say that got me to where I am. I've been in full-time ministry for about, let's see, about 22 years. So I did teach high school for a few years straight out of college. That was part of my ministry, but it was in a public setting. Then for 15 years, I worked at a home for troubled boys where we took in boys out of the youth detention centers and County jails, adult correction facilities. They were up to 21 year olds and we lived with them. We had them in our home as a residence, long term residence, and we kept them and basically loved on them, provided a family environment, family structure, discipline, Bible teaching, education, everything they needed. But so that was a good time of growth and challenge, but we raised our kids in that environment. And then I transitioned to NCF. So it's been a, I haven't moved around a lot. I've only been in two or three places, but The Lord's been really good
2: to use us where we've
1: been and be patient with me. So that's probably
2: in a nutshell. Matthew, just having talked to you before, I know that generosity plays a huge part in your story. Could you just share some of the moments where the concept of generosity was first introduced to you and how that impacted your life? Yeah, I will. So naturally, as a young man, I was very
1: entrepreneurial, always selling, buying, trading I always worked as a kid, made money always had my own money and my parents were concerned I remember my mother saying, you know you're really a hoarder here you, you got you know this is unhealthy kind of thing but when I was radically delivered from this world of, of sin and confusion and all the negatives that I'd been living in, there's a verse in Ephesians that really kind of clarified for me what God was after and it's ephesians 428 He says, the one who steals must no longer steal, but rather he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one that has need. And my mindset was that more of a thief than of a generous giver. It was always to twist something to make it my advantage, to kind of con somebody, to make a bargain, to make a deal. And as a young man, it was in small, petty things, but it was still the heart of manipulate and trick and take advantage of. You know, it was all that ugly, dark side of our souls. But I believe God just radically deposited in me this spiritual gift of giving. I know people talk about that and they say you get a spiritual gift when, you know, when Jesus gives you his spirit. But that's really what happened. I had a whole nother perspective. I wanted to make money so I could help people and do cool stuff. And it God gave me Opportunities to practice this faith—I mean, it's just wild stuff—and I could go on and on with stories. So I'll share a few, but I don't want to take too much time. But you know, my parents—they modeled generosity for us. I mean, I saw them give an awful lot. They were faithful tithers at their church. They were giving anytime somebody died, they were giving memorials and honorariums. I saw them always. I mean, weddings and the small town we grew up in, my mother was just giving to somebody all the time something. It was just a consistent thing. So I watched that. They never talked about it much. I don't remember them saying, like, this is what we do and why we do and what you should do. But it was just kind of catching them, seeing them do it. So I was naturally, when I became an adult, I thought it was natural to give. I didn't feel like it was some awkward, weird thing I had to start doing or oh, I didn't feel like it was an obligation. I just had a desire to do it. But it was interesting. God started giving me these little assignments, like, I'm going to test you here and see if if you'll step into this. And so Shannon, when we married, she's just kind of went along with it. She's been on this wild ride. We've had a single income home for 25 years, and she's never really just said, hey, we can't be doing that, and stop, and you're scaring me. You know, <laughs> I know she feels that way sometimes, but She's just going along with it, even when she's nervous. And then what happened was, as I began to test this and a try God, so to speak, he would always prove himself in really cool ways. But I was isolated. I didn't know other Christians lived this way because we never talked about money, right? You never shared with others what you were doing or what you thought was valuable. In our generation, people just didn't do that well at all. You didn't talk about money with your family. You didn't talk about it with your church family or your friends. It's just kind of this quiet, keep it all to yourself stuff. But then one day, I'm a cyclist, historically have been, that I would bike a good bit. We would do this bike ride every summer with all of our boys from the boys' home. It would be a big fundraiser and a tour and let them speak and raise money. And We would do about 500 miles in a week. That was the normal summer. We would do that in the summer. And we were going down to Florida along A1A, and I had heard about this ministry called Generous Giving, who you guys know, Todd Harper. So I looked it up. I said, well, I'm going to be going near Orlando. I'm going to go see this guy. I want to meet. Sounds cool. They're generous givers, and they love Jesus. Got to be something neat I want to check out. So I called Todd, tell him who I am. He doesn't know me from anybody. And I said, hey, I'm coming by. I'd like to come meet you and hear your story. And he graciously invited me to do that. And he started telling me about these retreats called A Journey of Generosity. I said, man, that sounds amazing. And I'm thinking nobody's doing what I'm doing. I'm thinking nobody's in this space of living generously, trying to be creative. But there's this whole world of generous givers, and they're everywhere, and there's lots of them. And I'm like, I had no idea. I'm on this little island down in South Georgia, and I've never even had these conversations with people. And so I talked to Todd, and he invited me into one of these jogs. Now, now let me back up just a little bit. Something that was really formative for me early on as a believer, probably in my Late teens, early twenties, was I would listen to Christian radio a lot. When I got saved, I basically quit listening to secular music. I still listened to it some, but I just didn't. I wasn't drawn to it like I had been. There was this radio program that Larry Burkett used to put on. Larry Burkett was Christian Financial Concepts out of Gainesville, Georgia, and he had a money line, money wise radio program, and it was just good Bible teaching around. Biblical Principles on Managing Your Money. And you guys may have heard some of those teachings or read some of his books, but that really was one of my kind of discipleship times when God was really feeding my soul around this concept. So I grew a lot then, so then those were seeds that were planted, but then when I met Todd and learned about this whole community later, it was like, okay, wow. So that put the fuel on the fire, let's say. So yeah, so I went to my first jog. Todd invited me in. Now, I was at this point doing development for the charity I had worked at. So I was over, I was VP over development, had to do all kinds of fundraising. And it was a lot of money we were raising. It was all private. So one of the deals was if you were a charity guy and you went to a jog, you couldn't fundraise. It was a safe space, right? And that was like, I know no. So you, you go in, we might let you in here, but you can't solicit anybody. It's just for learning purposes, trusting the Lord. And so I agreed to that, which was fine. And it just rocked my world. I went to Texas and went on a, it was a ranch out in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Totally rocked my world. So God began to deal with my heart around how I was using my platform, how I was leveraging my gifts, how I was investing in the kingdom and multiplying, all those things. And about two years later, he released me from from that work I'd been in for 15 years and I'd already written in my journal two years prior to leaving, Prepare to Work with Generous Giving or the National Christian Foundation. I'd written that down in my prayer journal. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how that was going to look. I had no idea. But I knew God was calling me into that. And so I did a lot of reading during that time. Randy Alcorn, Ron Blue, you know, anything I could get my hands on. Spent some time with Greg Sperry of NCF and Terry Parker. And so, you know, he's our founder. Just great guys, but... So God used those tools to kind of prepare me. And then I'll just say the Lord worked it out for me to come to NCF. I'm not the normal NCF field guy. I'm not. I'm like an old circuit rider preacher. I go from town to town, cover a lot of ground. I'm not on a horse, but it's just unique. I'm a rural guy, and most everybody's in a concentrated market of a city. But it has just been the best of all the world. I get to do what I want to do every day, what I love to do, what I'm called to do, and it's meaningful work. So it's pretty special.
0: You know, something you said there really stuck out, which is that feeling of kind of being alone in something that God has really called you into. And I think that we hear that a lot, especially from people who listen to the podcast and are otherwise not plugged into something like Generous Giving or some of these other organizations. I think that there are a lot of people out there today who have had the same kind of calling that God has worked in their heart and through whatever kind of means has pulled them into generosity and and they are living that out and just don't have community around that. And so that's one of the reasons why we love having people like you on this podcast, just to show others that there are many people out there trying to live out those same kind of principles and to just share what people have learned and what people are doing. So that resonates with a lot of people. I wanted to take a step backwards. You mentioned kind of early on, starting to take some kind of steps of faith. And each time you would do that, sometimes scaring the rest of the family, which I think some of us can relate to as well. Seeing God really reward those efforts and bless those efforts that He didn't leave you hanging. Maybe if a story or two come to mind, I'd love to hear how He kind of worked with you through that process. Yeah,
1: you know, there's this truth I've learned that God is going to give you as much as you can handle when you're ready to handle it and he won't overload our boat we like to see. So I'll start with one pre-marriage and then I'll move into marriage. So when I was in college I had worked hard growing up and had saved money and was paying my way through college and got some scholarships and stuff so it wasn't a huge burden. But I had a friend that was paying for college on a credit card. I'm not a financial advisor but that didn't make any sense to me. And I'm thinking, my man, what are you doing? So I started praying about that. I'm like, this is going to destroy him, or it could destroy him. I felt like the Lord put it in my spirit to pay off his debt. And I asked him about it. I asked him a lot of questions. Why are you using credit cards? How do you think that's going to work? What kind of interest are you paying? I mean, it was just absurd. And he came from a real poor area of the state. His family didn't have much, and he just didn't have any income or any way to do it and didn't know what to do. Didn't know about getting student loans, just had made a lot of bad decisions. So anyway, I wrestled with it for a little while, but I didn't tell my parents because I said if, if they knew I was trying to pay off somebody who was being foolish with credit card, they would flip out. And I can't remember how much. It was like two or $3,000. It wasn't crazy, but it, for a college kid, it was a lot of money. So I told him, I said, I'm going to pay this off. And I didn't have the answers. I wasn't going to like hold him to some kind of accountability structure. I didn't say, hey, I'm going to pay this off as long as you cut him up and don't do anything else stupid. And so I did. So fast forward a year or two later, he invites me to his wedding. He marries a girl that's very good financially, that manages her money well. And the Lord reminded me, see, I knew what he needed. You did what I asked you to do. I took care of it. Now, I might not have ever gotten to see that side of the story, right? He doesn't always let us see what he's doing. But that was just a huge motivator to me to say, hey, just step into this deep water. It's okay. And something good will come from it, even if it feels awkward. So that was a pre-marriage story. So then we get married. And Shannon's older than I am. So she was working during me finishing my master's at college. And I work part-time job. And she has a social work background. So she was in the social services world. So we weren't making much, but we were still giving. We were faithful, tithing and giving and doing as we had income. But we met this young man who didn't have a father that was trying to go to school to be a youth minister. And I said, well, shoot, we can help pay his college. We've got extra income. So we started paying for his college tuition. We set up a checking account for him and started sending him to school. Never really even questioned if it was a good idea or bad idea. We just said, hey, here's a need. Here's a guy that needs help. We're going to help him. And we got to do that. We didn't pay the whole full tuition, but we did help him a lot. And then he wound up finishing school and marrying and having several children and worked in multiple churches and has done some really good investments in the kingdom. Now, if that didn't happen, it was still the right thing to do. That was a cool thing. I want to tell you a time when I really missed an opportunity because I know God had asked me to do something. And I was just disobedient because that happens too. I've had that multiple times, sadly to say. I wish I would listen well and obey quickly. But this was a Christmas time story. I was in a, one of the big box stores with about three kids dragging around near Christmas, which was just a terrible idea. Who does that? <laughs> but I was last minute trying to get whatever it was. I think I was actually just going to buy diapers and groceries. I was not like Christmas shopping, but there were hordes of people everywhere. I've got a kid in the buggy, a baby in a car carrier thing, and one dragging behind me, you know, holding on to my pants or something. <laughs> and I see this little girl walking down the aisle, and it was very obvious to me she was not with an adult, but she was probably maybe 8, 10 years old, kind of nappy head, unkept a little bit. And it was just as clear as the bell. The Lord was like, you need to buy her a bicycle. It was as clear as a bell, like we're talking. And I didn't hear him out loud, but in my spirit, I knew it was telling me to do that. And I just kind of stopped right there in the middle of this chaos. I grabbed a buggy. And I'm looking around. I've got all these kids, and they're everywhere. And I'm like, Lord, this doesn't make any sense. I wouldn't even buy my kid a new bicycle. I mean, I'm buying bicycles at yard sales and flea markets, and somebody gave me a hand-me-down. I mean, I don't buy things like that. That's not my style. I'm a simple, conservative, fiscal tightwad, you know, even though I'm generous. So I'm like, Lord, that doesn't make any sense. I wouldn't even buy my own kid a new bicycle. Why would I buy this kid a bicycle? So I sat there for probably about a minute. It felt like forever, but it was probably about a minute. And I took a deep breath, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. The kid had left at this point. The the girl had left. And I said, okay, I'm going to go find her. I'll find her parents, and I'll just offer to buy her a bicycle and tell her the story that the Lord wanted me to buy her a bicycle. And she'll think I'm crazy, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I start looking for her around the bicycles. She's nowhere to be seen. So I start walking down the toy aisles. And there are thousands of people in the store, it feels like. Can't find her down the toy aisle. So now I'm starting to panic. I'm kind of like, uh uh-oh. So now I start going down the grocery aisle. I walked the store for 15, 20 minutes. Never saw her again. And it was really just like somebody punched me in the stomach and kind of knocked the wind out of me. I mean, I was physically sick because I knew what the Lord had said to do. And here I was being stupid and foolish and stubborn. And what I really did is I did two things. One, I grieved him, which that's terrible. If you've ever done that, you know what I mean. It's like grieving your mother, your grandmother. You're just sick about it. You just are stupid. So that was one feeling. But the other thing was just the fact that he was clear on what to do, and I was just disobedient. And that was just it was heartbreaking. And I've done it since. That was a time that was very clear that, I just missed the blessing. And that little girl might have been an angel just to see if I was going to obey. Who knows? But she disappeared on me. That was just terrible. So I hate that. I'll share one more story here, and I've got a bunch of them. But We were at church one Sunday, and we had some visiting missionaries who were trying to prepare to go to Bolivia. The guy worked with a mission aviation fellowship. He was an airplane mechanic who grew up in the jungle, learned to work on machinery because he was working on a lot of bulldozers and cut out equipment of the forestry world. They were doing a lot of that down there. And then met some missionaries, came to Christ. His family sent him off to school, gets connected with MAF, and goes back to work down there on an airplane for the missionaries. Really cool story. Married an American girl. So she spoke English. He spoke pretty good English, but not great. And they were raising money to go to Bolivia. So I said, well, I'd like to take you to lunch. After church, I'd like to take you to lunch, get to know you, hear your story, learn about your family. So he did. I said, what's it going to take to get you to Bolivia? He said, it'll take $5,100. I said, okay. Now, I had been saving money for a van for my wife. We had about three or four kids at this point. I can't tell you how many, but let's just say three or four. And I'd been saving diligently. I'm working at a nonprofit, making about 30000 a year. Five, four, five kids we were just making it let's say so i'm saving diligently to buy this van and i had a little van fun and lord was like you could send him to bolivia and i was like yeah i could but surely you won't want me to send all that van money to bolivia then how am i gonna buy a van? <laughs> we talked like that i'm like come on now lord do you really want me to do that so i wrestled with it i went and talked to shannon She didn't even blink. Yeah, I think we should do it. I said, okay. So I told him, I said, we're going to send you to Bolivia. Now, he didn't know I'd been saving for a van, okay? And I didn't tell him. We sent him to Bolivia. Well, as a side business, we had an onion business. We were living in Vidalia, Georgia. If you ever heard of the Vidalia onions, that's what they're known for. It reminds you, it's a sweet reminder of things, you know, people like sweet onions. But in the spring, we would sell onions to other groups, churches, schools, civic clubs, that kind of stuff. We would sell them in volume, big wholesale bulk. And that year, I sold about three times of what we ever sold before, tractor-trailer loads full. And I had enough money to buy a van cash at the end of the season. That was about three times what I had sent to Bolivia. So it was just the Lord saying, hey, you know, it's all mine. Don't overthink this thing. I have a bigger plan. And whether I had a van or not out of it, it didn't matter. But that was just a reward for being obedient, I think, and investing in something special. And so I've had things like that. You know, it just keeps happening. It's usually not some radical big thing because we're not radical big givers. We're percentage givers, but it's big compared to what we have, you know? So that's been pretty crazy. And then as far as my ministry, you know, I've been able to lead. Since probably my first jog, I've probably done about 30 or so generosity events and jogs, trained a lot of leaders in jogs and tried to multiply that movement. So that's been just a special way to keep that momentum going, you know, teaching others to do similar things. Been pretty special. But
2: yeah, that's a story or two comes to mind. Yeah, Matthew, it's so clear that you just have over time lived a life where it's easy to recall dozens of stories of these moments where God worked in your life or gave you an instruction. And when you obey and you take advantage of that opportunity, it brings so much joy in that moment. And then when you get to retell it or share it with your wife or whatever you do with that story is up to you. But it just is a gift that God's given you, that opportunity to live into his story for that moment. But I think we all know that It's not every moment of every day that you're experiencing that joy of giving. There's kind of the time in between these stories. And I'm hoping you can share a little bit more about what goes through your head in between these stories.
1: Yeah, yeah, good point, because it's not every day those things happen. And sometimes it's confusing, like, what are you doing, Lord? You know, is this a good decision? Am I being reckless? Am I being haphazard? Like, I'll tell you, there was a time when I was getting a haircut. And the barber, who I knew was a believer, was really in a lot of pain physically. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, I'm having all kind of back and neck, spine stuff. I said, well, tell me, what are you doing? He said, well, I need an MRI, and I need surgery on my discs that are herniated. He said, but I can't afford an MRI. I said, wow. I said, well, how much is an MRI? He said, well, it would be about $3,000 to do the scans they want to do before they'll do the surgery. I said, wow that's expensive. Do you have insurance? No, don't have insurance. So I'm sitting here getting a haircut and the Lord's like, you could do that. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, but who buys your barber a $3,000 MRI? You know, I I might create a panic or something. I really wrestled for about two weeks, called him up. Hey, I want to pay for your MRI. I don't want you to tell anybody. (laughs) He said, okay, are you serious? I said, yes. But he gets the MRI, gets surgery, he's healed, does, goes back to barbering. In about two months, he dies of a heart attack, just all of a sudden. And I'm like, this was my first reaction. Now, I'm sorry to say this, but this was just true. Lord, what, why in the world did I invest in that? If he was going to die in two months, you knew. <laughs> what, what are we doing? That was a terrible investment. But the Lord was like, no. It was obedience. It's my money. It's not about the money. See, I was making it about numbers. Like, is that a good investment? So so the return's great. But the Lord was like, no, the return's great because you obeyed and that's mine anyway. I've got all the money in the world. It's all mine, anything in the earth. So anyway, those are some of the lows that kind of shake me a little bit. It's like, whoa, you know, it's not always, doesn't always make sense in my eastern South Georgia financial brain, you know, it's, God's ways are so much bigger. So anyway, some of the things that kind of keep me grounded during these lulls, I do a lot of jogs. That's a recentering for me, usually five or six a year, and I've never done one that I felt I like was a waste of time. God always deals with my heart, a different a different layer, a different hidden compartment, some idol I've allowed to creep in, some sin that I've not been paying attention to, or, or I just flat out open about something I'm doing stupid, you know. But that keeps me grounded. And I'm part of the generous giving circle. They have an inner circle of people that they cheer on and encourage and pray for. So that's a community, so to speak, there. I'm connected with Generous Church, Patrick Johnson. Y'all probably know Patrick. He has a prayer group and does some things regularly to encourage the prayer movement around generosity and international giving they're doing a lot of creative initiatives, so I support him financially as one of my ministries, but also I'm a part of his prayer team. When they have special things happening, they keep me in the loop. So that keeps me grounded to, to some of those things. I teach a fair amount. I like Ron Blue's simplifying the money conversation. So I'm teaching that currently to a group of homeschool kids. I taught it to Sunday school classes. I preached out of that that material to churches, done presentations. I'm educating a lot, advisors. I do lunch and learn type programs regularly. I do those things for charity leaders regularly where I'm trying to encourage and equip, but also challenge their worldview around money. God just gives me those kinds of opportunities regularly. So it's like I'm always preparing for something next. I've got one next week, speaking this Sunday at a church. I mean, it's that kind of stuff on a regular basis. And then I get to mentor families that are trying to walk this generous lifestyle out. So that's one of the joys of my role with NCF is we help families with their giving strategy. What matters to you? What do you want your legacy to look like? What resources are you managing? How does this fit within a biblical framework? You know, what are the passions that you're already giving to or that you'd love to explore? I mean, we help weave all these things together together. That really, at the end of the day, if a married couple will do it, it really brings unity and joy in the process. If they're single, it gives them direction, it gives them clarity, it gives them focus. Now, it's hard work because it's spiritual. The heart, money matters or heart matters, and it's close to the heart. And if people will let you into that space, that's a special trust that we get to build those families. And so, I see it as a serious business. I don't see it as a kind of a just a lighthearted, you know, maybe. A nice thing to do. I see it as part of a ministry. I really see my role more like a financial pastor, so to speak. I'm trying to shepherd their heart around what's good for them, what's good for the kingdom, what I've learned, and then we're learning together. So it's not like I have the answers to a lot of the challenges that we run into, but that's special stuff. I mean, it's not. I realize it's unique that we get to step into that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a big part of the way that you stay grounded is one community which is, I mean, so important and so prevalent throughout scripture as well, that the church and how God grows each of us is through community. And it is true for generosity, too. If you want to grow in generosity, you need to find a way to surround yourself, whatever that looks like. And you just mentioned several ways to do that. And another important thing that you were brought up that I don't know that we've talked a lot about on the show before, but is the concept of teaching generosity and mentoring generosity as a means to allow God to continue to grow your own generosity. And in the surgery world, there's a phrase which probably a lot of people are familiar with, see one, do one, teach one. And, you know, that's how we learn in medicine. You First you watch and observe somebody else doing it, then you practice it yourself, and then you teach it as a means to become better. And I think what you were saying is actually very profound that as you go through the process of teaching, which, and I don't just mean in your role at NCF, but you know, at your church or with people that you know, the homeschool group that you talked about, those are things that anybody can do. You know, You don't have to be on staff with a major nonprofit organization in order to do those kinds of things. And I think God works through those in a powerful way. I'd love to hear how you kind of process through some kind of structure for giving at this point in your life. There's a whole bunch of different ways that we've heard on the show for how people do that, whether it's some kind of a percentage giving, a finish line, or just kind of spontaneously as God leads you. But how do you kind of think through that process or you and your wife together?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, you know, I keep continually wrestling with that. I think it's healthy to view our generosity like driving a car. And if we keep our hands on the steering wheel and we adjust as a curve comes or as a hill comes, then we stay pretty well between the lines. But if we just take our hands off, you can be in the ditch in a hurry. We've always tried to give beyond what was comfortable. That's kind of been our philosophy. We've always lived within our means, so I don't take on expenses beyond what we can pay. We've avoided a lot of debt, so I've had friends with two working incomes that had three or four times the the income we did that were unable to give because they were so strapped with stuff. So we've lived simply. We've just chosen to do that, to keep some margin. But I'll be frank with you. I realize we're some of the wealthiest people in the world. I mean, we forget that as Americans. But, you know, I'm in the top 1% or 2% of the wealth of all the world. So when I ask God, okay, so why? Why did you give me so much wealth Why did you place me in this position and give me the education and the background and the training and the skills and all those things? Well, I have to answer it with because he wants me to be a pipeline to others, right? It's not a reservoir mindset. It's a pipeline. So I'm looking for creative ways to invest in people. And I love to come to a charity. Like I've started several church starts and plants and I love getting folks going, you know, and getting them into new something. They're trying to get established. They don't have income, and we can just put some fuel in the tank. I love doing that. We support, on average, maybe about 10 charities a year, and it's usually similar type of stuff, but it's usually kingdom-minded focused. I like evangelism, Bible translation, working with, you know, basic needs of poverty and our local churches and things like that, but We've tried to set this cap, and so I got this from Alan Barnhart. You guys know Alan. And we've done several jogs with him in Memphis. He does several a year up there. But his stories just really, really resonated with us about how much do you need to live on. And I talked to John Cortine as well with McClellan about this concept. But we tried to cap our income at 100000 which is a lot. That's a lot of money. That's not a Mother Teresa lifestyle. That's a family of seven. But what's funny is I did that before I ever made 100000 So it was like this goal, like, hey, God, if we ever get to this, whatever we make over that, we'll give it away. Well, it wasn't long before we hit that. I was playing with the stocks, buying stocks, and really just kind of doing it. A friend of mine had taught me some things, and I was like, Lord, whatever we make here, we'll give it away. And I was making all kind of money out of the stock market. And, you know, it was hot for the last few years. But it was funny. It's like when you commit those things, the Lord just does, he does prove himself. And it's, you know, we were able to give about 20%. It's kind of where we've been landing. We may have to adjust that. You know, the kids are getting college age and transitioning and a lot of medical bills, things like that. So I'm not like really stuck on it like it's some legalistic way, but that's where we've kind of landed right now. And we moved into a neighborhood and a market that's more costly to minister to those families that have much. And it's not, that's not your normal missionary thinking, right? It's like, we're actually intentionally moving in among those with influence and affluence so that we can invest in those families. And I just felt like that's what the Lord wanted. And so we just sold a farm we had and a home we had that we all loved and it was comfortable and set up like we wanted. But we felt like that was not a good use of our time and a good use of resources and our skills and our calling. And so we've kind of stepped into this unknown land a little bit. It's good, and it's going to be great. And the Lord's already confirming it in many ways, but we've intentionally done that. And so, you know, I don't know what the Lord's doing exactly and how He's going to use us continuing to do it, but I get so much favor when I go to spend time with these families because I've been around generous families so often and generous business leaders. And, you know, they, this is what they rarely have. They rarely have a trusted friend that's an advisor that's not asking them for something. And so I have that freedom to step into that inner circle just as a charitable advisor and to really build trust and to hear their heart and to deal with family dynamics and Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3 issues, I mean, we deal with all the hard stuff, but these families need love, they need care, they need concern, and they're often forgotten about because they have resources. People are like, "Ah, they don't need any help, they're taken care of. Well, they may be taken care of financially, but there's a lot of other issues that need to be addressed. And so that's the population that I've been asked to serve and feel like it's part of the ministry we've stepped into And I get a lot of joy out of it. I really do. And I see a lot of impact and influence when the Lord changes minds. That's what's cool, which you get to see the ripple effect. So that's fun stuff.
2: Matthew, I think that's a really interesting point that you make. And if you think about it from a worldly perspective, as you move into an area there where the median income is higher, you might think that population is not the neediest in terms of, financial help and advice and whatever it is but i think when you take a look at the statistics that i think we're all familiar with around generosity as income increases there seems to be a proportional drop-off in generosity which is really interesting so you've stepped into this need which is kind of under the surface unless you're looking for it it's really easy to miss because the dollar amount that's given away might be increased but the impact on the heart level, it's hidden. And when you step into that relationship and put yourself around someone, you really get to know them. You get that opportunity to really kind of share some of these stories that you have and just be a trusted friend and and advisor in that way. I'm really curious for how your decision to set a finish line for yourself changed the way that you think about money and then also allowed you to walk alongside others in the same kind of perspective change? Yeah, there's
1: definitely a relationship to what I would say practicing what we preach. Really, all I'm doing is inviting others to join us, and we're trying to practice. I never act like we have it figured out, and this is the formula, because God asks different families to do different things. But I do know this, if you won't be generous with $5, you won't be generous with 5000 So it's not a numbers Game. It's a percentage game. So trying to help the family, let's just say the family that has five million to steward, they need to be generous with that five million, just like I need to be with my five thousand. We're both accountable for what we've been given, right? And just helping them see that, and treating them as real people, and not trying to get something from them. The challenge with affluence, and it's almost a curse in our culture, because the more affluence you have, the more isolated you become. You're trusted friends are all your advisors that you're paying, (laughs) your attorney, your accountant, you know, your investment teams. And nothing's wrong with that. They give great advice. And I've had men tell me that some of their most spiritual growth moments came from their financial planner, I mean, which is pretty special. So, but it's hard to relate. So just, we just try to treat people like individuals and not based on what they have just try to get to know them on a real heart level and just being vulnerable and hey we've got issues and these are things we struggle with and and people seem to really draw into that because it's just unique it's not there are not many places where we can just be vulnerable and be real and not make it about who has the biggest nicest whatever so anyway that's kind of how i approach it and the lord seems to give
0: us favor in that space like that so Matthew, do any stories come to mind of how you've seen God work through some of the givers or some of the families that you have worked with or have seen kind of interact with NCF?
1: Yeah, yeah, Keelan, I get to do so many of those great stories regularly. I'll share a couple. I actually got a text this morning from a friend that I took six men to Montana on a fishing trip. And we did a Journey of Generosity and it's been radical for many of those guys. Their whole trajectories changed. What they're doing with resources, gifting from their businesses, teaching others. I mean, it's just been special. But he sent me a reminder this morning and said, man, this was the most special time. And I, it's been a couple of years, you know, so it just keeps rippling. But one family that I serve had wanted to take care of pastors as they retired. So picture, picture a faithful, bivocational pastor that's not really made much money his whole career, very little insurance. He retires, and most of the time we put him up on a shelf and act like he's not <laughs> valued anymore, which is tragic, but that's typically what I see. So we had this family that said, hey, we want to invest in pastors as they retire and their spouses to care for their medical needs, whatever it may be. So we started a program and began to help that, and we've been able to give around $10 million out to medically needy pastors and spouses over the last few years all over the southeast. I mean, up into Kentucky and Virginia, down into all of southeast of the U.S. And that just came from a heart of, hey, we want to love on these guys that have been so faithful to shepherd us and steward us, but they haven't been taken care of well. And they haven't had the resources to invest well, usually, so it's not like they had big retirement accounts. So that was special. And just to read those letters from these guys that are helped, or these ladies that, you know, their husband died and the family help pay for the funeral or help pay for, you know, ongoing medical needs that are coming in. It's just amazing. They're blown away that you mean there's no strings attached. You mean there's somebody just wanting to take care of us. You mean there's no, it's sitting like a gimmick. I mean, really, we had a hard time in the beginning getting people to even participate because like it was a scam, you know? And so, but there's been so much joy that has come from that. And then another family I serve, he's a financial advisor and I began to, try to just bring value to him and his business. I wasn't asking him for anything. I was like, hey, what can we help you with, you know, when it comes to charitable planning and resources and education? And we do, like, webinars where we offer CE credits and things like that. So I just began to share those opportunities with him and try to bring value to what he was already doing with his clients. Well, fast forward a bit, we invited him to several Journey of Generosity retreats, which he could never make. After a couple of years of inviting to about six or seven, he finally came with his wife to one. So then fast forward, I called to check on him maybe a year later, and unbeknownst to me, he had gone through facilitator training so he could lead jogs on his own. I didn't know know anything about him doing that, and he began to lead his own journey of generosity retreats for his staff and and some of his clients. He's opened over 49 donor advised funds that I know of to help his clients give money away and has set goals to hit 100 million in generous gifts from his clients. He's got over 400 or so families that he serves. He set some goals. Hey, we're going to help give away this money. We're teaching people to be generous. He disciples them around biblical concepts. He's gone, gone with me to Kingdom Advisors Conference, which is next week. It's just been a special thing. And now we're. Partnering together to host some jogs for his clients, so we're doing that together. But he's multiplying, you know, he's replicating and he's investing and just helping steward these families and really cheering them on. And he's seeing a lot of good fruit. So just to be a part of that in some way and to encourage him, man, it's just been it's been amazing. Those are the kinds of things I get to see, and there are lots more. But those are two that stood out to me recently. So,
2: what kind of obstacles? either from your own experience or from your observations and your conversations and relationships with others, get in the way of people leaning into generosity in a more intentional way? Yeah, great question, Cody.
1: There's definitely similarities with all of us, right? What I struggle with, most everybody struggles with. That's that's in general, I think. (laughs) I would say simply it's fear and greed. That's the two sides of the coin usually. A scarcity mindset. I'm not going to have enough. You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? We try to plan for every contingency known to man. You know, most cultures don't even buy insurance. That's not even a thing. We have insurance. I made a list recently. I was writing a blog on something similar, and I was making a list of all the insurances. And it was insane. It was every contingency known to man that we wouldn't need God, right? As long as we can fund it, whatever happens, we're going to be fine. Well, that's not a generous mindset. That's a fearful mindset. I've had friends that have had much, but they don't share it. They chain it down. They lock it up. They put four or five padlocks on them because they're worried somebody's going to steal it. That's not generous. That's not sharing what God's given us with others. Then I know other families that are very generous. They have a nice home. Welcome others into use. it. They have a vacation house. Yes, please go share it, share it, share it. I think fear is a big one. And then greed, when I say greed, that's a word that we rarely talk about in our culture. And we, talk, we rarely talk about it in the church. But if we're honest, most of us struggle with greed in some way. It's kind of an under-the-radar type sin. It's like people just kind of ignore it a little bit. You kind of just push it to the side. Because I can look at my neighbor, and I can say, yeah, I'm not as greedy as they are. Or I can look at my friend, and I can say, yeah, but I don't have what he has or she has. So we justify in some way, but greed is a heart matter. And to me, it tends to manifest in this idea of keeping versus giving. That's kind of how it tends to show up. It can be clothing. It can be books. It can be tools. It can be vacations. It doesn't matter what it is. We can turn it into an idol. We can tend to keep versus sharing. And the danger, so to speak, there's this journey I'm trying to walk in and living. Is, it's pretty radical. It's a little scary, a little dangerous. It's not safe and secure kind of stuff. It's uncomfortable, but uncomfortable in a good way. And it keeps breaking this grip of greed. If I have this feeling of greed and I give, it just knocks it back. It takes its authority and power away, and it just gives you liberty. So I found that if I would just keep, like I keep a bunch of $5 bills in my wallet and in my truck, and $5 was nothing, but I see a guy cleaning the bathroom in the airport, and I say, man, you're doing a good job, and I give him $5. It's like this huge gift to me. It's like, man, I'd really got to encourage that guy. I'll pull off on the side of the road. I'll see these guys picking up garbage on the side of the road. Hey, man, you guys are doing a great job, and just give them a tip. They don't know what to do. They look at you like, are you serious? What is this? And I'm like, man, it's just, I want to thank you for what you're doing. It matters. You're important. God love you. But it helps me just to keep the mindset of, hey, you have all these things so you can be a blessing. So anyway, those are the two things I would say that that probably are the biggest barriers. And there are others, I'm sure. But, you know, Scripture is very clear that the love of money is what grips our heart. Is I know some of the poorest people I know are, are they love it. They love it. It's not a matter of if you have money to have to love it. Greed is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the bank account balance. So that's what I'd say on that.
0: Yeah, it's so true. And the funny thing is both those, fear and greed, come back to control. And we just have this really strong well, I know I do, and probably most people listening have a deep desire for control. And, you know, basically what that comes down to is a desire to not have to rely on anyone, and included in that is God. When, in fact, we are designed to always depend on God in all things, not just in our finances. And so generosity is very much so the opposite of that in so many ways. But as soon as you give something away, you're giving up control of it. You're giving it over to God or whoever you're giving it to. And it's out of your hands at that point. And I think each time we do that, it starts to chip away at those two things that you mentioned, fear and greed. And it's not like those things, just like any other sin in our life, evaporates all at once. It's a long process of chipping away at a stone, you know, bit by bit. But God is faithful and He Absolutely works through that. And in my own life, you know, it's when I look back, it's been a hundred tiny little examples of how he's chipped away at that. And I think that's just how he works.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me add one thing to that. I'm convicted often about the context of the way I'm thinking. Like, so you have a lot of extra in the bank, you know, the markets are doing good. Well, I want to be more generous. Well, the markets aren't doing so good. Things are tight. We've got medical issues. Oh, you know, it ebbs and flows, right? So there's this, there's a contentment element in there with me that says, can I be content with where I am today and is what God's given enough and can I keep living this out? That's the challenge for me because I, you know, I tend to want to pull back and I tend to want to start thinking scarcity when
0: the troubles are close. So anyway, just that was a thought that when you're saying that, this stuck out to me. Yeah, it's very true. And some of those seasons are when God does his most incredible work, when he sets it up in that way, putting us in just the right position to really do something powerful. Well, clearly God has done all kinds of things in and through your life. I'd love to hear what you're looking forward towards in the next five or 10 years, what you see coming on the horizon and what you're most excited about. Yeah, there's so many good things. I kind of live in this
1: really nice spot of uh, seeing a lot of good in the world because I'm working with the families that are helping invest in these areas of need. So I do get to see many good things, but at the same time, we see all the troubles. I think what excites me the most in the next few years is this great wealth transfer. The baby boomers will transfer more monies than we've ever seen in the history of the world to their kids and grandkids. So that's exciting that there'll be a lot of resources available. What concerns me is the families aren't prepared to manage it or steward it generally, and they're not thinking through a biblical lens around how do I think about this money and how do I manage it for God's good, for others' good and God's glory? How do I help influence that space? That's what I get up in the morning thinking about, and that's what I spend time on every week is how do we help influence the stewards of these resources, so that they're putting the monies into good places. Because the Christian community, we have enough money today. We're not waiting on any money to solve all the problems of the world. It doesn't matter what the trouble is. Homelessness, disease, Bible translation, all the money exists today in the hands of Christians. We're just holding it closed fisted And why are we doing that is because we're fearful. <laughs> we think we're going to get old and not have enough money in the bank. Well, we didn't have money when we started out (laughs) and we made it. The Lord provides for us. And so helping the older generation, they're the ones close to my heart. I had grandparents that were older when I was young and they all died when I was young. There's an older generation that have much to steward and much to invest, but they're just not investing greatly in the right places. And I'm not sure if it's out of Some deep sense of selfishness. It's probably more out of ignorance in my mind. They haven't been educated. They haven't been challenged. How much is enough? What does God want you to do with all his money? How much should you leave to your kids? How much should you leave to your grandkids? Will it help them or hurt them? They're not being asked those questions often. So that's why I spend a lot of time with financial advisors, because they're the gatekeepers. They're that trusted advisor. They have more influence than the pastor on those families, usually. So if I can invest in those places, help men and women steward well, finish well, transfer well, and then find joy while they're alive, I get so frustrated with families. This is the standard answer. Well, when we die, we're going to leave this to our kids and grandkids. We're going to split it evenly. Well, why are you doing that? Why are you not giving it now and enjoying seeing where it's going? Do your grandkids need $3 million apiece? Will that corrupt them or will that really be a blessing to the kingdom and their community and your great-grandchildren? They're not even remotely asking those kinds of questions. And it's one of our jobs is to help gently lead them into the places of saying, okay, so we've been blessed greatly for what purpose? So that we'll be a blessing. So that we can make an impact in our legacy. So we don't wait till we die and leave it all behind and let y'all figure it out. But I run into those conversations on a regular basis, and it's, it's challenging. But I'm looking forward to multiplying our efforts. We've got a lot of good momentum. There's such good generosity work going on in the international space. A lot of church leaders are grabbing a hold of this message and sharing it with their people and their congregations. I don't see it as much in the States. But I do believe that God is still moving in the hearts of his people here with generosity. People that have much tend to not think much about how to manage their money when it comes to investing in kingdom places. So anyway, I look forward to those kinds of things. And there's a lot to be done. I feel like, you know, people say, hey, man, you're burning a candle at both ends. Well, that's true. But, you know, I can rest in heaven. I've got one shot at this, and so we grind every day from early to dark, trying to get as much accomplished as we can, because this is battleground. It's isn't a playground. This is war zone, and this is frontline work. If you're dealing with people's hearts and you're dealing with money, the enemy doesn't want it to go into the right places. He doesn't want it to be a blessing. And so we're doing all that we know to do to really cheer people on and encourage them in the process
2: Matthew, I've really enjoyed hearing some of your stories and about the work that you get to do every day and the way that you serve people. How can our listeners learn more about the National Christian Foundation and the work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, great question. So NCF is, we're really blessed to be a 41-year-old organization, the largest giving entity in the world to Christian causes. Our families gave around $2.1 billion last year to charity. That was around 30,000 different charities. So we get to see a lot of great monies released. That's really our mission is to mobilize money through biblical generosity, by inspiring biblical generosity. So we have a website, ncfgiving.com, that has a whole plethora of resources, videos, books, library, concept sheets, we do a lot of non-cash giving. So most charities are funded by giving. About 80% of charities funded by giving cash. But the larger asset base is the non-cash world. And that's what we specialize in is gifts of business interests, stock securities, mutual funds, gifts of real estate, intellectual property, anything that has value that's an appreciated asset. There's typically some value we can help buy. Saving on taxes and giving to charity. So that's what we do and help families with their giving planning, their giving strategies. There's a lot that behind the scenes that NCF does, but that's in a nutshell. And they can contact one of our offices. We have 30 offices across the country. Most major cities has a presence of some sort. Or they can connect me and I can point them in the right direction. If there's specific information they'd like to know or if they'd like to get connected with one of our local
0: offices, I'd be glad to make an introduction. So, Matthew, as we get to the end of the episode here, we like to leave some time for our manager's minute. And we like to leave our listeners with one practical action that they can take step into their role as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. So do you have any suggestions for today? Yeah,
1: thank you for thinking of that. So here's what I would leave you listeners with is our responsibility to manage God's resources. It's my responsibility to manage what he's given me. It's your responsibility to manage what he's given you. And we use the word stewardship lightly, but I think stewardship is a lifestyle. It's all that we have, all that we are, managing it well. So I would challenge you to teach that to your children. Make it a part of your family's devotional time, Bible studies. Teach that to your small groups at your churches. Teach that to your Sunday school classes to your congregations, to your employees, your managers. Use resources like Faith and Finance. The Chalmers Institute has a good little simple overview, and it's it's simple. Everybody can understand it, but it's just on basic money management. Or use the treasure principle, which is Randy Alcorn, which is fantastic. Or use Ron Blue's Simplifying the Money Conversation. Any of those little simple tools gets people pointed in the right direction, It calms their fears about what do we do? We don't know. We don't understand. This is confusing. It gives them some comfort by hearing it from a biblical perspective. The Bible's timeless. It has all the resources we would need on making financial decisions. It gives us all the insight and the wisdom we need. So just step into teaching that and sharing that would be my encouragement.
2: Well, Matthew, it's been a pleasure spending this time with you today, and we just have really enjoyed getting to know you a little better hearing some of your stories I really appreciate the work that you do, but more importantly, the way that you live. It's such an example and just a wonderful testimony to how God can free us from the love of money through generosity. So just appreciate you being here today. Thank you,
1: guys. I appreciate the opportunity and thank you for your good work and for sharing this podcast and keep up the good work.
0: Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about sending a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finish Line pledge through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at dot Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at dot com slash episode 69. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.